For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the lives lay down our lives for the brothers but if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him how does god's love abide in him little children let us not love in the world or talk or in word or talk but in deed and in truth by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him for who, whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. He knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us, by the spirit whom he has given us. Thank you, Maggie. You can take a seat. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you, embodied, and it's good to be back in the pulpit. It has been a little while since I've been able to preach just because of different things, um, but uh, I'm glad to be here today and to open the Word of God with you out of John, 1 John chapter 3. Our passage this morning is focused on assurance, and assurance is really the currency, the bedrock of all of our relationships. Friendships go well when you have an assurance that the other person really does care about you. Marriages go well, so I've read, if you have an assurance that your spouse uh, wants the best for you and is willing to lay down their life for you. Business relationships, we could go on and on, parent and child. Even our dogs, dogs are probably the most relationally assured beings in the universe, that they are certain that they're, you're going to take care of them and that you love them even after they've uh, destroyed your living room. But our passage this morning is, is centered on assurance. And we also can struggle in our assurance with our relationship with God. Some of us, I think, never do, and I'm, God bless you for that. I'm glad that you don't. Uh, others of us do, and sometimes that happens. It can happen for all kinds of reasons. Sometimes it happens because of circumstances that we face, right? Why is God letting this happen to me? What did I do to deserve this? Sometimes it can come as a result of sort of other questions as you're learning or as you find out more about the Bible or as you're, you know, I think it often happens when kids go off to college because that's the first time they're really exposed to a lot of kind of other ideas, and so they're like, well, wait a minute, how does all that work? And and so I think that for a variety of reasons, our own sin, can God really forgive me? Does God still love me? All of those different things. And there is a spectrum, I feel like, of assurance. On the high end, we can struggle with, am I really a Christian? Am I really saved? Do I really belong to Jesus? And that can be incredibly uh, just traumatic, kind of thinking through and then struggling with that question. And I think maybe on the lower end, we can struggle with, am I doing what God wants me to do? Like, am I doing the right thing? Generally speaking, with my life, some of us struggle with that vocationally. Like, is this the thing I'm supposed to do with my life? Or even in specific situations, am I doing what God wants me to do now? 
Um, sermons are another good example. Am I about to preach the message that God wants me to preach? I don't know. I'll leave that for you to decide. <clears throat> but John wants to guide us towards assurance in Jesus this morning. And, and to put it briefly, he tells us that love is our assurance in our relationship with God. Verse 11 says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And we should love one another because the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit love one another, and he has extended that life to us. Loving relationships, it turns out, are the most important thing in the universe. And the sermon summary this morning is this. We have assurance before God and among his people by abiding in Christ's love. We have assurance before God and among his people by abiding in Christ's love. Love, John says, is the assurance of new life in Christ. In the church, what God is doing in the church is forming a new humanity. He's taking people from all these other different groups and turning them into something new. And therefore, as John has said throughout his letter, we cannot, we must not give in to any sort of ethnic, partisan, or tribal hatred or contempt or ill will towards one another. He tells us that love has been demonstrated for us in Jesus' death on our behalf. The love of Christ is self-sacrificing, genuine, practical. Other voices and powers, and we're not sure about this, but it seems from the context there was this other group within the church or that had broken away from the church that John is writing to that he refers to as antichrists. So it seems like from our passage, perhaps some of the things that these antichrists were saying were causing John's brothers and sisters in this church to have these assurance issues. But other voices and powers, and mostly our own hearts, will condemn us and tell us that we're not actually a part of what God is doing. But our obedience and love, our trust in God's love, and God's greater witness through the Holy Spirit gives us assurance in his presence now and in the day of judgment later. And this whole section, we're kind of in the middle of 1 John now, and this whole section starts with in chapter 2, verse 28. It won't be on the screen, but what it says is, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, when he comes again, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. John wants us to have confidence on the day of judgment when Jesus returns. That confidence comes from abiding in Christ's love in the meantime, right now, in our daily life and prayer. We cannot ignore the stakes of our love and our life together as Christians. We don't hear as many sermons on the day of judgment anymore. We can speculate as to why that is. We're getting one today, sort of. But we cannot ignore that it's not just about our happiness and assurance. And we forget that sometimes, I think, in the American church. That's part of it, but that's not the whole of it. Most importantly, there is this looming fact that one fine day, we will appear before the throne of the Creator and be judged. Now, the ultimate verdict is certain in Jesus. We don't have to fear a surprise guilty but that doesn't make the judgment less real. We have the opportunity to please God, to be found pleasing to God on the day of judgment, to be an ingredient in the divine happiness, as C.S. Lewis writes. Our mortal lives 
can be thought of as a training, as a preparation, and at the end comes the most final exam. I lived in China for a few years, and our second year there, we inherited a car from some other teammates who had moved home to America, and we needed the car because the campus that we did Bible studies on was in a different town, so it was about an hour away, and we had been taking the bus up until that point, but when the car became available, we, we nabbed that. There were three of us that went out to do these Bible studies, and only one of us actually had a driver's license, and it wasn't me, it was one of my teammates, and so initially, he had to do all of the driving, which he didn't really like, and he eventually convinced the other two of us that we should probably go try and get our driver's license, and I was not at all thrilled by that prospect. Our car was an awkward boat of a vehicle. It was really, I don't even know what it was. I don't even know who manufactured it. But it's this really long, really broad hood. It sat up really high. The windshield wipers didn't work. Very stressful just to sit in it while we tried to drive through the crowded and cramped streets of Lanzhou, let alone to even begin to think about driving it. But, you know, I figured I should probably go ahead and try and get my license. And so the Chinese, the Chinese driver's exam is a really big deal. There are over 900 questions. You only get asked 100 of them, but they will pull a random 100 out of this pool of 900. People study for months. Like, it's crazy. Like, there's apps to study for the, it, you know, it's like it's this whole thing. Thankfully, they had an English language version, otherwise we would have been completely lost. So I wound up taking the bus up the mountain. For some reason, they put their DMV on top of a mountain on the other side of the river, I don't know, but that's where it was. And so I took, I took the 45-minute drive up there three times but ultimately failed to ever get my Chinese driver's license. <laughs> and I never told, no, it's not bad news. I'll never, I never told my teammates this so we can keep it our little secret. I intentionally failed those driver's license tests. <clears throat> never studied, <laughs> didn't do any kind of preparation. I did not want to drive that car, and I never did. Friends, let us not do badly on the test of the day of judgment. That is what today is about, is let's prepare a little bit better than I did for my Chinese driver's license test. Let us abide in Christ's love so that none of us will shrink back on the day that the Lord visits us. And so how do we do that? How do we abide in Christ's love? And John tells us in verse 23 and 24. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another, just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. Belief or allegiance and loving one another go hand in hand. John has stated throughout the letter, it's one of his themes, that it is impossible to love God and also hate the other humans around you. It can't be done. If your allegiance is to Jesus, then you will seek ways to love others. Obviously not perfectly, not completely, not all the time, but the seeking will be happening in your heart. He says in verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death unto life. And that's an assurance word, right? We know that this has happened to us because we love the brothers, because we love the church. Whoever does not love abides in death. And we abide in Christ's love first by having faith in what he did for us on the cross and in the empty tomb. In accordance with his ancient promises, Yahweh, the creator and covenant God of Israel, has come to us in Jesus Christ. He is our good king who heals our infirmities, bears the burden of our sins, pours out his Holy Spirit and resurrection life upon us. Jesus is generous and kind 
courageous, and faithful. He looks with favor on children, those poor in spirit. He proclaims God's rule by miracle and parable. He faces down the enemy and drives the darkness from those who cry out for deliverance. Jesus eats with people, friends and enemies alike, offering his body and blood to be broken and poured out so that you and I and everyone we've ever met can live in freedom from the enslaving tyranny of sin. The good thing about, one of the good things about the good news is that it's true whether you believe it or not. We all have days, and sometimes whole seasons, where the good news of what God has done in Jesus just doesn't move us. It might be good news, but it's also old news. Been there, done that, I went to Sunday school, thank you very much. There are seasons when we are not eager to pray, seasons when we are not really into reading the Bible, when participating in church is not appealing. Abiding in Christ's love for us is to trust that he loves us, that he is faithful, even in those seasons when our faith is very small. And we also abide in Christ's love by loving others, by living in love towards others. And John gives us three qualities of love in verses 16 to 18. We see that love is self-sacrificing, love is genuine, and love is practical. Verse 16 says, by this we know love, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Love is what Jesus did when he died on the cross. Love is not cheap, chiefly a warm feeling. It's a giving of yourself, your time, money, skills, perhaps even your very life, so that another may live for another's highest good. Real love happens not only in return for other people's love, and we read that in the, earlier this morning, but we, in spite of evil and in return for evil and wrongdoing. Like Jesus embraced the cross, so we too must embrace the reality of death. We must open ourselves to pain, to loss, for the sake of others. So love is self-sacrificing. It's also genuine. We must actually seek to do love towards those that the Lord puts in our path, not just to think about it and talk about it. Verse 17 says, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how, how does God's love abide in him? We have to actually do love. We have to actually intend to love the ones that the Lord puts in our place or puts in our way. Now, one of the good things about love not chiefly being a warm affection uh, is that it frees us from having to like the people that we're called to love. This is good news to me because I don't like a whole lot of people. No, I'm just kidding. It depends on the day. <laughs> this is a frequent and normal part of church life. We're not all going to be best friends. <laughs> and that's just the way it is. Like, we're not all going to be best friends, right? We're going to have closer relationships in a congregation, and we don't need to try and, and uh, befriend everybody. Generally speaking, I do like all of you. Um, yes. But of course, there are days when people get on my nerves, as there are days for you. But as we live in love, one of the things that I've found as I've gotten older is that even when it's somebody that I don't like or somebody's, someone's company that I don't really prefer, if I am acting in love towards them, actual affection 
sometimes begins to form for that person, even though I may not have liked them in the beginning. So love is self-sacrificing like Jesus. Love is genuine. We have to actually do it and intend to do it. And love is practical. It meets people's needs. Verse 18, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Jesus didn't save us from heaven, right? He didn't just stay up there sending, you know, good vibes and thoughts and prayers. He showed up. He acted. Now, this doesn't mean, and I want to be careful to point this out, especially in our current season, that you can't love people in word and deed, things like encouragement notes and things like that. But I think you understand what John is trying to put across, that we can't just sit back and say, oh, I love that person, and then not actually do anything to express that love to them. Love is practical. It meets needs. Jesus had a body. And he loved people in embodied things. He touched and he healed and he, he ate and he broke bread and he did all these other things. And I urge you to continue. And I don't say any of that because I don't think you know it. I think Calvary is a very loving church. It's a reminder and an encouragement to continue in this sacrificial, genuine, practical love. Calvary is full of servants whose first impulse is to help. That's a good thing. That's part of the reason why I love this church. But the coronavirus has disrupted many of our normal practices of love. The relief sale didn't happen. Our mission trip to Canada didn't happen. Our greeting time is different. We can't really eat together like we used to. Our children's ministry is disrupted. Visiting with the sick or those in hospitals obviously has to look different now. As a pastor, and I imagine this is the same for you in different ways, it's been hard to know what to do or how to do it. Or if we're doing enough. But I, I, I just want to urge you and, and, and put it before you, brothers and sisters, to take heart that we have done well in loving one another. And I want you to press on in seeking ways to love one another as we're able in this strange time. And the core of John's message comes in verses 19 and 20. By this, by our self-sacrificing, genuine, practical love of one another, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him, before God. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Trusting in Christ's love for us and obeying his ways grants us assurance in God's presence. We often imagine coming before God as being a bit like when Dorothy meets the Wizard of Oz. There's a fair amount of shouting and fear and fire, and he won't help you until you do something for him. But I think that the picture John wants us to cultivate is something closer to when you go to see Santa Claus around Christmas time. Obviously, it's different. I'm not trying to equate God and Santa Claus, but it's somewhat closer to that image than something like the Wizard of Oz. The Creator's disposition is one of love and generosity and compassion. He is friendly. He is friendly towards us. He's not like Oz. You know, who dares to step? That's not what it's like. That's not what it's like. The Lord wants to see you, to hear from you, to welcome you right up onto his lap. Condemnation comes from the enemy or our own frail hearts, not from the Lord. As Paul says in another place, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. 
And the result of our assurance before God is confident prayer. See this in verses 21 and 22. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Now, verse 22 is a hard saying for the obvious reason that we do not receive everything we ask from God. Now, I don't think John is being unrealistic or ignoring our common experience in prayer. I think John is fully aware that often people don't get healed, that solutions do not appear, that relationships remain broken. Jesus himself had prayers go unanswered, or at least answered no. And I think that the issue that we have when we see passages like this, we go, well, but wait a minute, that's not how that works. Because I think we often fall into what we could call an instrumental view of prayer, meaning that prayer is an instrument or a tool. Prayer is a tool that I use to get what I want. That's not how John sees prayer. John understands prayer as a means of transformation, as a way of love between us and God. We see that prayer is a a fruit of uh, our confident assurance that we belong to God. And verse 22 tells us that prayer is also the fruit of obedience and pleasing God. Prayer is an expression of our assurance. It's an expression of relationship. That does, result, that does sometimes mean and involve receiving what we ask of him. But I think that the biblical authors would tell us that, that is a happy side effect of prayer and not its chief goal and purpose. People who are attuned to God in obedience find their prayers answered, not because they're better people, they're not, not because God likes them more, he doesn't, but because their hearts have been formed by his commands. Our prayers become less about our needs, not that we shouldn't ask about our needs, but they become less about our needs and more about how we can meet others' needs. In a very real way, God begins to turn us into the answer to our own prayer. And I urge you, brothers and sisters, have confidence in God's love for you. Have confidence in God's love for you. Have confidence in prayer, not just to ask for daily bread. Do that. He wants to hear it, but also to ask to become holy, to become kinder, to have opportunities to show mercy, to bind up the brokenhearted, to share the gospel with someone. John also wants us to be assured of our place among God's people. Verse 11 again says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Abiding in Christ's love, grants us assurance among the church because the church's whole business is learning how to love, learning how to be these new men and women. And I know it often doesn't seem like it, especially over these last couple of months, just because it seems like nothing's been happening, but what God is up to in little local churches like Calvary, many others, is a big deal. Certainly we're not perfect. Certainly we have limitations. But God is at work among this congregation and among the other congregations in our community, knitting together a new humanity from all tribes, races, parties, and orientations. Jesus says that our unity is the proof of the good news. He says that in the Gospel of John. They will know that all of this is true because of your unity. Because people who should naturally hate one another, the only way that they're going to get along 
not just tolerate, not just permit to exist, but actually be growing in love for one another is if God really did save us in the death and rising again of Jesus. John says in verse 15, everyone who hates his brother, everyone who hates his fellow Christian is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Brothers and sisters, we must continue to wage war against the hatred in our hearts. Hatred and anger are not fitting for the Lord's people because we are learning from Jesus not how to hate, not how to put other people in boxes, but how to love, how to become new humans, renewed in the Holy Spirit. Verse 12 and 13 say, We should not be like Cain, call back way to the beginning of Genesis, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds, Cain's deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, with that the world hates you. And Jesus said very similar things on the night that he was betrayed. Do not be surprised when the world hates you because they hated me first. And John is not exaggerating. Hatred leads to tension, which boils over into violence and murder. We see that in our own country. We see that throughout the world. God's way of acting in the world, you know, we want him to, you know, do all sorts of things, and he just doesn't. And what he is doing appears very humble and very indirect, and in some ways, I don't want to say stupid, because, but, you know, we think, God, you need to fix the world, and his response is, absolutely, go to church on Sunday. <laughs> but, you know, what about, like, armies and things? It's like, nope. You don't have to worry about that. You need to learn how to love. In the midst of routine Sundays, in the midst of the conflicts that happen in the life of the congregation, in the midst of our efforts to serve together, God is doing his thing. He is working to renew and mend the world. And I urge you, church, to be assured of your place among this family of God's people and abide in Christ's love by sacrificially, genuinely, practically giving of yourself so that others can live. Calvary, we must reaffirm and continue to reaffirm our allegiance to Jesus and our loving commitment to one another. The devil, maybe you haven't been paying attention, the devil is pulling out all the stops in churches across the land to rip us apart and to turn us against one another. This pandemic, unfortunately, is far from over. We will not stop having strong opinions about it, and the very nature of the coronavirus is eroding the bonds of congregations, not just congregations, but of all of our society. There's a presidential election coming in November. We have probably not seen the last of rioting and societal upheaval in our cities. We must remain united with one another through our union with Christ, not just for our sake, but for the sake of the witness of the gospel in our communities. If this is true, then we can get along together in love. Jesus warned us that there would be birth pains before the end. So let us have confidence in his presence, love for one another, so that we may bring honor to the Lord Jesus on the day he comes again. I'll close with a few verses from John chapter 2. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, 
we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Behold what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for this good day. And I ask, by the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would continue to build us up in love. Lord, I have been so encouraged by this church over these last few months, and I hope that we all have. I hope that we all have received encouragement and love and service from one another. And I ask, Lord, if there are folks in our congregation who have been overlooked, that you would bring those people to our attention so that we can love them. Lord, that we can extend your generosity and your grace and your mercy to them. Father, I ask that you would be at work in each of our hearts to produce a rich crop of mercy for one another, of forbearance, of patience. Lord, none of us are perfect. And I ask that as we continue to try and live together in the ways that we're able to, that you would help us to do that. Lord, that we would not forget that what we're doing here is about the Lord Jesus. Lord, may we not forget the stakes of our witness as a community to the good news. And may we not forget, Lord, that one day, one fine day, you are coming back. We don't know when that will be, but we can rest assured that that is coming, that you are coming. And I ask, Lord, for each of these precious brothers and sisters whom you love, that none of us would shrink back in shame on that day, but would meet you in joy and in the fullness of love and life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.